and I'm one of the pastors, and, and if you were around in the cafe before, yes, I am the guy that walked into the ladies' toilets. Um, that, if you're new here, that's not how we do things. Uh, that's not the kind of community we are. That was not my finest hour. It will not happen again. Uh, what we do do here every week is we teach from the Bible. So we love to open the Bible and we expect to be able to hear what God's saying to us and to learn from it. So that's what we're going to do each week. And uh, we've just started a brand new series. So if you're new, you've, you've found a, picked a good week to come and join us. Brand new series. The series is called Sketches. And it's set in the book of 1 Samuel, which is a wonderful book in the Old Testament. We're going to spend a number of weeks looking at the second half of 1 Samuel. If you're kind of new to the Bible, 1 Samuel is an ancient story. It's set in about 1000 BC. Um, so it's a very ancient story, but it's also a very modern story. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel has a lot to tell us about modern life, the challenges and the opportunities uh, that modern life presents. And if you're with us last week, we, we landed in chapter 16 of the story where a young shepherd boy called David, who wasn't even invited or considered for selection, amazingly is anointed, is chosen by God through a messenger of his to be the next king. In fact, to replace the current king. And what we're saying about this series called Sketches, through the, and we're looking at the life of David, is in some ways, one Samuel is a little bit like what it is. It's, it's a, a work of art in many ways. And we're saying each passage, each chapter is kind of like a sketch, kind of like a work of art. And just as you look in deeply to a sketch or a work of art, and the longer you look, the more things you notice, so it is with this series in one Samuel. The more you look into the characters and the events of David's life, you will see primarily something of, of who God is something of what God is like. And you will also see something of yourself, kind of in the shadows almost, both the person that you currently are and also, I believe, the person that God's called you to be, the kind of flourishing person God's called you to be. Both God and ourselves are actually kind of almost in the background of the sketch of David's life as we look closely at it. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16, I'm gonna pick off, pick off, pick up from the verse that I finished with last week, which is verse 13. Uh, and let me read it to you. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, it's the harp, uh, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you'll be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. 
There's a story going around, which may be apocryphal, may be true, but the story goes, there was a, a, a young boy, a number of years ago, a teenage boy, who at school was discussing with his friends what he would be when he grew up. I'm sure we've all had the same discussions when we were, when we were younger. I think I, I think I still do now. But he was discussing what would he be when he became an adult. And when it came to his turn, he said, in no uncertain terms, when I'm older, I will save London, save the nation, and save the world. And I imagine there must have been a few titters and chuckles of, di of disbelief. Well, the story goes that that teenage boy was one Winston Churchill. And when Winston Churchill became prime minister just after the Nazis, of course, invaded France in, in May 1940, Churchill wrote this, at last I had authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I was walking with destiny and that my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. I can feel my Churchill impression coming on that to restrain myself from doing a Churchillian impression. I can't really quite do it. But Churchill lived, it seems, with a from a teenager, with a profound sense of destiny. He lived with a profound sense of destiny. And that word destiny is going to be our focus this morning. Churchill knew what his life was for. And so he lived with an incredible sense of purpose. And even when he reached his mid-60s and he was in complete political obscurity, really, such was his sense of destiny that he continued to live with purpose and with calling. And of course, when the hour came, he was ready for it. And we're very grateful that he was. And David, as we've landed in our part of the story in 1 Samuel, is also a teenage boy now living with an incredible sense of destiny, God has chosen him to be the next king of Israel, the one that would save London, the nation, and the world, you might say. Now some of us, I think, do also live with a sense of destiny. Some of us live with an acute sense of destiny and purpose. Some of you will live with a sense of, I, I know what I was put on this earth to do, that kind of sense of purpose and calling. Or if it's not quite as clear and as acute as that, maybe it's more we live with a clear sense of ambition. You'd say something like, I, I want my life to count. I want to achieve things of worth. I want to leave a legacy, and I've got a reasonable plan and path in order to achieve that, a sense of ambition or, or destiny in that sense. Some of us, that isn't really so much how we view the world. Perhaps we might be very unsure of what the future holds, and that may or may not particularly bother us. We might be more content to live kind of day by day and, and be more uncertain as to what the future holds. And for others of us, maybe we did have a real sense of purpose, destiny even, calling perhaps. But actually, circumstances have been such over the months or over the years, over the decades even, that now it's kind of less certain, you're not so sure, even disillusioned perhaps. So this is something a bit unusual. Just take a moment just to turn to the person next to you and just, depending on how comfortable you feel with them, just tell them, in simple terms, what, what do you think your purpose is? And I know destiny sounds quite a dramatic word. None of us start conversations by saying, my destiny is, and I'm so-and-so. But what would, if you had to summarize a kind of purpose in life, could you tell the person next to you or behind you, what do you think your purpose in life is? Like literally 25 seconds, go.
Five seconds left. Three, two, one. Let's go. Okay. I'd be fascinated to know what were those, what those um, what those discussions entailed. Listen. Whatever you would say about your personal purpose and destiny, whether you're absolutely clear or you haven't got a clue or somewhere in between, this passage in the Bible is going to teach us a lot about how to pursue destiny and what kind of destiny to pursue. And we're going to look at it over three steps like this. We're going to look at the mystery inherent in destiny. Secondly, the process that destiny requires and thirdly, the clarity of destiny that we can all know over the next 25 minutes or so. So here we go. The mystery inherent in destiny. Now, speaking of mystery, there is some mystery within this passage. You might have spotted it, not least at the beginning. The very reason that David is plucked from shepherding into the royal court is a little bit mysterious, would you not say? Now, I need to do a little bit of a pit stop because we're not going to duck a tricky bit of scripture. We're going to take it on, look at it, and understand it. But it's not only a pit stop, it's also going to help us understand the mystery of destiny, the process, and clarity. So it's kind of a pit stop, but we're also going in the right direction, I promise. We are told in this passage that Saul is being tormented by a harmful spirit, and that that evil spirit has been sent by God deliberately to do so. Did that give any of us a few cause for question when we were reading through that? There might be all kinds of ways you'd frame the questions about that. Let me frame it like this. Questions might, we might ask, are there such things as evil spirits? And secondly, does God deploy them to harm people? And questions worth asking? So, number one, are there evil spirits? Well, just get out of our Western kind of mindset for a moment. All around the world, all around the world, there are many millions of people who will be convinced, wouldn't even have to think about it, who'll be convinced that there absolutely is a evil dimension and evil spiritual force at loose in the world. That will be very much part of their daily reality and understanding in their worldview. Now, sometimes people can then uh, obsess over that reality. That's a, maybe a different danger. In the West, that's not the way we go, is it? We go the other way from that. We don't obsess over the idea, let's say, of a devil. We mainly dismiss the idea of a devil or an evil, evil force. That's kind of laughable, dark ages stuff, isn't it? The devil is, a, if anything, is a mythical, laughable, red, cartoonish figure. But the Bible doesn't subscribe to either one of those views. It neither obsesses nor dismisses the nature of evil and evil spirits. Jesus Christ, who let's remember many, many people who would count themselves atheists or be skeptical about his claims to be God or the way to God, would say was perhaps the wisest teacher of all time. Jesus Christ spent much of his teaching healing ministry casting out, getting rid of evil spirits from people. Formed an enormous part of what he did. He was neither intimidated by them nor dismissed the reality of them. He knew, what well, I think we all know, that if there is ultimate good, then there needs to be opposite. There is evil by definition. So for us in the West, that classic line from the film The Usual Suspects is pretty pertinent. You know it? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he doesn't exist. That is the trick, I think, that he's pulled in our context in the West. And so he's able to do great damage as a result. But, question two, what is God doing sending an evil spirit 
to specifically bring torment to Saul. That's, that I, I'm probably not going to call the next sermon series God's sending of evil spirits. That's not often something we come across in our uh, Christian faith. But actually, I think the reality of what we see here is good news. Let me explain why. We're seeing the reality that God is sovereign over all things, including an evil spiritual dimension. The devil is only permitted to do what God allows him to do to a limited extent and for a limited time. That is good news. That God is over all. He has an overarching authority, even over the forces of evil. Now, that's not dualism. We're not talking about forces of good and evil fighting it out with an uncertain result. God is good. Evil is defeated, and the resurrection of Jesus has, become, has begun the restoration and the renewal of this earth and the undoing of evil. So God is in control, therefore, even of bad, evil spirits, and therefore, he can even use them to accomplish his good purposes. God does know evil, but because he's sovereign, he's able to even use evil to accomplish incredible good. And if you're any doubt about that, think about the crucifixion. Awful evil perpetrated upon Christ at the cross and yet it accomplished ultimate good. God is quite able in this particular passage, in this sketch of David's life, to use evil spirits to accomplish his good purposes, to bring David to the royal court and ultimately from David's royal line to bring Jesus to begin the restoration and the renewal of this earth. And... He's also able to use this evil spirit to do good to Saul, to bring a wake up to Saul. I think God's kindness is still in evidence with Saul, because as we heard last week, Saul is deteriorating rapidly, not externally, very impressive looking man, king, warrior figure. Internally, his character is disintegrating and deteriorating, and so were he to realize the extent to which he's giving himself over to evil, that would be great news for him. Were he to come to repentance and to come back into God's purposes, that would be the kindness of God in evidence. And the tragedy of Saul, and we haven't got time to go back into his original story, if you like, his backstory, but he's a man with such potential. And the tragedy of his story is that he continually ignores the kind of wake-up calls of God. And instead, his character disintegrates in a tragic way. Now, like I said, that is not a complete aside. It wasn't just a theological pit stop. It is not separate to the whole theme of destiny. How so? Because God can harness all kinds of things to bring you into his good purposes, to bring you into his destiny. All kinds of things to be able to bring you into your destiny. Even the worst of things and even the most mysterious of things. And the question is, are we open to that? Are we open to mysterious things, even really hard things, actually being vehicles to step into the flourishing destiny that God has for us? Saul wasn't. He shut the door down. And David is also experiencing Something of mystery, I would suggest, as he pursues his destiny. I want you to notice what Saul says to Jesse when he kind of sends for David via David's father, Jesse. In verse 19, he says, send me your son who is with the sheep. 
So that tells us, therefore, that when David last week was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, what happened next? David did not go off marching to the royal tent with Saul standing to one side, given the, given the crown to become king. He went back to the obscurity and the anonymity of being a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. Right at this moment, nothing in Saul's present experience, sorry, nothing in David's present experience suggests that his destiny is going to be that of a king. There would have been some mystery for him, this incredible moment of, being, of be having his destiny mapped out for him as king, and then, oh, just me and the sheep again. Nothing in his present experience suggests what his destiny is. And I think, I want to encourage you, God wants to encourage you this morning. If you are living, let's say, with a dream to accomplish great things for God, if you're ambitious to see the kingdom of God be extended and known in your context, don't let your destiny be defined by any present mystery. Don't let your destiny be defined by the present mystery. Who knows what your version of shepherding sheep in obscurity might lead to. And equally, if you're not sure what you're even ambitious for, if you don't have a sense of calling or, or destiny, if you're, you're in a field of sheep and you're not holding tight to promises. God wants to encourage you this morning. You are not forgotten. There is a calling. There is a purpose. There is a destiny to your life. And why do I know that? Because the Bible tells me over and over again in broad brushstrokes that to become a Christian means you step into God's eternal story which has the most extraordinary fulfillment and destiny to it. God's eternal story culminates in God renewing and restoring this earth, inviting people to step into true freedom and abundant life with him. And so if you're thinking, I don't really know what it means to live with a sense of purpose, or I don't have destiny, I want you to listen to what Jesus Christ says to you. John chapter 15, verse 16, says this to Christians, anybody who would step into the Christian faith. Jesus says to you, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. No, I chose some of you. I chose you. The nature of being a Christian is you have responded to a choice that God has made, that he wants you in his family and he has a purpose and a destiny for you. You are not aimlessly making your way through life. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, I have made a decision that you will be fruitful as you partner with me in a story that, what did he say? Abides. That means lasts forever. So I think God wants to encourage some of us this morning. Embrace the mystery. Whether you are certain of what God's called you for, you're like a Churchill or a David, or you have no idea at all. I want to suggest to you that mystery is inherent in destiny, and the question is, will you embrace that? But, number two, if we only embrace mystery, then I guess we could be quite passive if we just do that. And passivity doesn't take us towards destiny. Destiny requires, number two, a process, an active process. I was uh, walking along to church this morning. I always walk by the river first thing in the, in the morning. And I always see people, always see people rowing, rowing uh, along. 
And I often see a range of people from the kind of the proper pros, probably at East Molsey, boat club and that kind of thing, through to those who are, I think, kind of willing amateurs and looks like they kind of stumbled into a boat and just about keeping it, keeping it going. But I noticed someone today who had, they'd pulled their boat over the four of them, pulled their boat to one side, and they were having a com two of them having a conversation, and one of them was kind of uh, repairing something on the side of the boat, I think, and the fourth one was doing his, doing his trainers up. I just kind of noticed they had, they had all paused to engage in a process. They all realized that part of their, if you like, destiny of reaching the end of this morning's row requires process, and it's not always smooth. And they've taken a bit of a pit stop, and it stops. Process is the crucial in understanding and achieving destiny. And God does that in two ways through David, and does it in two ways through you, through character and through gifts. Number one, character. During his shepherding days, David clearly developed pretty outstanding character. And the specific aspects of David's character, or at least one of them, that has come to the attention of the royal court, did you notice it, is his courage. He's described as a man of valor. It's a wonderful description. And it seems that David so embraced the mystery of his obscure shepherding years and the fact that he was excluded in large part from his family that he developed or he allowed God to be able to develop in him the fundamental characteristic feature that he would need for his destiny and that you need for yours. Courage. David had learned to look fear right in the face, which in his context was lions and bears attacking his sheep which we'll hear about next week, and overcome fear. He'd learnt and God had built courage into his character during that kind of mystery time, if you like. Nelson Mandela said this, I learnt, and he knew a few things or two, he said, I learnt that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave person is not he or she who does not feel afraid, but he or she who conquers the fear courage. And the wonderful news, if you're a Christian, is that there is a ready available source of courage. The Holy Spirit is a source of courage. He draws alongside to empower us, and one of the ways he empowers us is to give us courage, boldness. We hear about it over and over again. The New Testament church was such, they needed it all the time. They needed reserves of courage and boldness they just didn't have. I know I do, and maybe you do. At the beginning of Acts, the, the disciples have been given their destiny by Jesus, very clearly. Take the good news of who I am and what I've done. Take it, Jesus says, to, the, to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Or London, the nation, and the world, you could say. Destiny is pretty clear. But in Acts 1, we see them sitting in a room full of fear, courage looks to be in short supply for the destiny to be achieved. And then, as many of us will know and will have read, the Holy Spirit comes in a moment and knee-knocking, fearful disciples suddenly become courageous and bold. They get out onto the streets and they both proclaim and demonstrate the love of God to those that don't know it. They demonstrate and proclaim the good news that Christ really is risen that he really has defeated sin, death, and evil, and his mission of renewing and restoring a fracturing world is in full operation. Courage allows them to step in their destiny. Where do you need courage? I won't ask you to turn to the person next to you. They might be pushing it a bit far. Where do you need courage?
If you're a Christian, your destiny is to partner with God in his global plan to renew and restore this earth. And our context happens to be this borough of Kingston, this city of London. And just as the Holy Spirit in verse 13 rushed upon David, just as the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, he will come upon you and give you courage should you ask for it. We sang a song, I need you, God. We live in a place where comfort and busyness dull often our sense of need for God. But you start partnering with God in this incredible mission he has to make his love known to bring renewal and restoration to this context with all the brokenness that's around, and suddenly you start to realize, oh yeah, I need God. Specifically, I need courage. And I'm here to tell you there's good news. The Holy Spirit will give it to you and will empower you with it. I had a moment of the day where I went to chat to a guy at the bus stop. I just felt a nudge from God to say, just go have a chat to him and tell him something of my love. And I'm walking over there and I'm just feeling total lack of courage, none at all. I got reasonable use of words, or at least I did to all these particular few moments. Normally, I can be relatively articulate. But I was just literally, I didn't know what to say, I was starting to dry mouth. What am I gonna say to this random guy at the bus stop? So I pray, Holy Spirit, please will you bring me courage? Because you did and you have all through the history of the church. And I'm not saying the guy suddenly gave his life to God and was bowled over by the reality and nature of God, but he tasted something of the renewal and the restoration of this earth that the love of God brings in a conversation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit did give me some courage, and he'll give it to you. But you need to ask. And he loves to draw alongside. The courage to parent your children in a godly, patient, loving way. He'll give it to you. The courage to... I don't know, start a new initiative or volunteer for, for a local charity or join in what we already do through the Joel Night Shelter and the Food Bank and Kingston Community School. Courage to join in with that. He'll give you courage to ensure fairness and integrity in your workplace. Courage to explain your faith to someone in that moment, which we all know can move on so quickly when courage deserts us. We'll give you courage to offer to pray for someone who's sick. Second thing, in the process of coming to destiny on top of character is gifting that God is working on. The second part of David's process is that his gifts are being honed in preparation for his destiny. So he's known to be articulate, man of good speech, we hear. Something he's going to need as a leader. He's known that to be a skillful warrior or in all likelihood because he's a teenage shepherd, he's probably people are saying he's got the potential to be a skillful warrior. Very handsome guy, that's gonna help him out in some, in some ways, we're told that. But the gift that is the one that propels him on the next part of his process towards his destiny is his musical gift. His ability to play the, the harp of some description. And I want us to notice that David uses his gift to serve, to bring something of the blessing of God into a hurting person's life, in this case, Saul. Now you might say, hang on a minute, Philip. he didn't really have much choice. <laughs> if the king sends for you, you just do what you're told. True. You might also say, eh, this is less about serving and it's more, this is a great opportunity for David. He's been plucked from obscurity into the, the center of power from playing his harp to an audience of sheep to now playing his harp to a royal audience. This is a promotion. Again, true. But 
I want you to remember, David knows his destiny to be king over Israel, to lead the people of God who are intended ultimately to be a blessing to all nations. He's got a remarkable destiny to save London, the nation, and the world, you could say. But at this moment, when he's summoned, rather than seeing his destiny being fulfilled by being made king, it is being fulfilled by serving the king, who would appear to be going nowhere at all. And so I wonder, it's only speculation, was there a part of David that thought, hey, this, this royal court, Saul, this royal throne that you're sitting on, it's mine. If anyone should be playing the harp for the king, it should be you playing the harp and me should be king. If, if he did think that, if anything of that kind of tugged at him, any sense of entitlement, he puts that to one side, he does as he's asked, he uses his gift to serve, and he embraces the process of his gifts being honed as he comes towards his destiny. What's the point? Don't wait until you think your destiny is being fulfilled before you start using your gifts to bless others. You never know where it will lead. You never know where being a person who's available to bring your gifts to the table, and we all have them, including the ones of you who think, oh, I'm not sure. You never know where bringing your gifts to the table in a servant-hearted way will lead. If in your mind you're thinking, I know there's a process at work here. My character's being shaped. The gifts that I have, I'm learning to use them to bless others and to bring healing to those that are hurting. God smiles upon that because you're engaging in the process. And, and just to push on that, don't dismiss any of your gifts. Don't do a mental categorization of the gifts that are up here and the gifts that are down here. I'm, again, I'm speculating, but when David was anointed to be king, I would have thought he'd have been thinking, right, my primary gifts need to be my fighting skills, because that's going to be pretty important, because wars are given. I need to work on my speech making, so I have to make a few convincing speeches to draw the Israelites towards me. I might need to work on my strategic leadership of arranging sheep in the right places because one day I need to arrange tribes of Israel in the right places. I can't imagine he'd have thought, heart playing, that's going to be the key thing. And yet, it is his musical ability that is the thing that moves him along on his process to becoming king and fulfilling his destiny. Don't discount the gifts that you have, both from the point of view of how they bless others and from how God is using them to bring you through a process. David moves towards his destiny as the Holy Spirit empowers him to grow in courage and to grow in service of others. I'm running shorter on time than I realized I would, so I'll be quick here, but this is important. It's that point is where I would suggest that all of us can find clarity this morning in our destiny. For all of us, growing by the Holy Spirit in the characteristic of courage and of using our gifts in a servant-hearted way will bring is part of all of our destinies. The kind of king God was looking for was one who would rule with courage and with a servant's heart. That's what God's been honing in David. And David willingly submits to the mystery of that. He doesn't always understand and he willingly submits to the process of that. And here's where we're gonna land. As he's doing that, as I said last week, as you look into this sketch of David's life, behind, in the background, as David does that, he's pointing us to someone else. There's another figure in the background, another descendant of Jesse, also born in Bethlehem. 
One who from an early age knew that he had the greatest and hardest destiny of anyone who ever lived. Saving London, the nation, and the world. I'm not talking about Churchill. Jesus Christ, one who humbled himself in the process towards that destiny, who learnt. And if there probably wasn't mystery to him, there was certainly obscurity in his process. He was prepared to learn. He grew in favor with God and man, we're told. One who came not to serve, but to, sorry, not to be served, but to serve. We're seeing a king who came with the power of heaven to establish the kingdom of heaven by serving. In Jesus Christ, one who, when faced with the terrors of the forces of evil and all the fear that went with that, looked at it squarely in the face, drew upon reserves of courage like no other and overcame it, defeated evil and brought you and I into the kingdom of heaven to reign alongside him and to, if you like, rule just like him, with courage and with service. So what is your destiny? Well, in some ways, it's, it's the same as David's. It's the same as David's. To establish something of the kingdom of God, a kingdom of grace and love and peace and justice and mercy on truth in your context as it is in heaven. It's the same destiny, in that sense, as David had in New Malden, and in Esher, and in Twickenham, and in Surbiton, and in Tolworth, and in Kingston, and in this London, you are, a Christian is called to, as it were, rule and reign alongside Christ, to live with courage, to act with service, and to establish something of the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, in your context on earth. Same destiny. And how does God do that? By inviting us to embrace the mystery that we all experience sometimes, and to engage in the process as he cultivates character, and as he cultivates gifting. I wonder if the band could, could join me and help me to help us to respond. And um, we respond in different ways here at King's Church, but we're always keen that, that if God is speaking through his word, as he does, then it's, it's wonderful for us to respond to that, both in the quiet of our heart and also with kind of actions as well, because that confirms the response. So in a moment, I'm just gonna ask some of us to stand. So what I'd love us to do is just to close our eyes so it's a quiet and safe space. And I think there are three types of people that God would particularly love to draw into a response this morning. But if we've got our eyes closed, then it's just a safe thing to stand, to make that active response, and for God to draw you into what he's got. And, and the first type of person that might want to respond is, and it's, this might sound a bit heavy, but it's someone who sees something of themselves in Saul. And by that I mean, maybe externals are fairly Good, but you know internally there is a quiet deterioration taking place. Maybe you've given yourself to something which you know is subtly destructive. And God is saying this morning, it is his kindness to you to bring a degree of pressure in order that you might respond to him and step back into his good purposes. That's the first person I'd love to stand in a moment. No one's looking, no one's watching. Second person or type of person is someone who thinks, I, I just don't really know what the future holds. I don't live with a sense of purpose, particularly, or a sense of destiny. I'm, I'm not even sure I particularly have one. 
God wants to say to you again this morning, you do. Jesus Christ says to you, you do. He has appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will abide in his eternal story. So for some of us, there's just a moment, just to stand in a moment and say, yep, God, I, maybe I've slightly discounted myself. I trust you. And I want to be available to you. Not because I'm about a spectacular destiny that makes me famous, but because I trust you that you actually want me to step into your story and to bring something of your kingdom in the context where I am. And the third person that I would invite to stand, third type of person, is someone who actually, I think I'm reasonably clear, maybe on purpose, on destiny, but there's mystery in it, and I might be tempted to discount the process that's taking me to it. And God would just invite you to embrace the mystery and to engage in the process. Don't skip out what he's doing in your life. There's a reason why it might feel mysterious. He's God and you're not. And there's a process which is incredibly important in his cultivation of your character, of your gifting, and for you to step in to the royal destiny that he has for you. So I'd just love us to stand. If you would respond to any of those three types of people, we're keeping our eyes closed. Just stand, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll worship. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. And then the fourth type of person is just anyone who would say, I don't know about this Christianity thing, maybe. But I, I would love to find a destiny, a purpose. I would love to explore what it looks like for me to step into God's eternal story. You might think, yeah, I have loads of questions, loads of objections. But just by standing and me praying for you, you can begin to take steps towards a God who would reverse your destiny from being separate from him forever and move it towards coming to him forever. If you want to take a step towards God, maybe for the first time, we'd love, I'd love you to stand. No one's watching and we can pray. Lord God, I just want to pray an overall prayer of blessing for all of these people. You know every one of their hearts. You know the passions. You know the frustrations. And so we, as a group, want to trust you, God, to come and do what you need to do. Maybe to bring us to repentance for our good. Maybe to help us to, for the first time, to believe that we have a role to play in the eternal story of God to renew this place and bring his kingdom. And maybe not to skip to destiny, but to embrace the mystery and the process. God, come and work in hearts in this room. Come and bring forgiveness where necessary. Come and bring encouragement where necessary. Come and bring affirmation of things you've spoken in the past that maybe have been pushed to one side. God, in these special moments, would you do what only you can do? Draw us to yourself, we pray. We trust you, God. Have your way with our lives. Keep knitting us into you.